Before I begin the uh, sermon today, which is, blessed are they that mourn, how appropriate really, isn't it, uh, that that subject comes up this week as we collectively mourn for our country, as we mourn for the state of humanity, as we mourn for the fact that sin seems to be overwhelming humanity and we are surrounded by it. And I know I'm brokenhearted. And I know you're brokenhearted. This has been a tough week, a tough week. But I just want to say to you that uh, God is in control. He is in control. It makes it very clear in the Bible. You read it, you read it to the last page, and here's what it says. We win. We win. He wins. He wins. So be comforted, church. Be comforted. God is in control. Let's bow in prayer as we ask him to anoint this message. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne and we ask you, Lord, that this message that you have given us today be your words inspired by the Holy Spirit, Father. We ask you that every word touch our heart and resonates within us as it gives us hope and comfort. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so this is the second beatitude, and you know that I'm on this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the, uh, God has laid this on my heart because it becomes the foundational predicate for what we are as Christians. This becomes the building blocks of Christianity. This is the bright line between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It is the New Covenant by grace alone, justification by faith. The law has been rendered nullatory, uh, and so we now approach the throne of God through the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. And so these Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount become critically important for us as, as God wants us to understand what our character needs to be as we approach him and live every day as Christians and change a broken world. And so if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, the second beatitude, and it reads, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, and in this sense, blessed means happy. That's the translation. And so it is amazing to think that Jesus is saying that those who are mourning will be comforted and will be happy. Uh, and so clearly what's going on here is Jesus is speaking something entirely different than the world would understand mourning. This is not mourning in the sense that the world understands mourning but rather it is a spiritual mourning. It is a groaning in the heart for the things of God and for the, a review of the desperate nature of the world. Uh, and so this word is entirely spiritual uh, in its meaning. And so our Lord did not say that those who are mourning in this world are happy. That's not it. Uh, and just as uh, poverty of spirit is not a financial poverty, but both of these terms refer to our spiritual standing before God, our spiritual mindset. And so the second beatitude speaks of this spiritual mourning where God comforts that individual. Now there is no comfort anywhere that can be compared to the comfort of God. 
You see, the comfort of man or of people, humanity, it's a far, far distant comforting from the comforting of God. And so everything in this world would stand in opposition to what God is saying here, would be opposed to these kind of, of statements. But Jesus says that happiness comes through sorrow, uh, and his words are even sharper if you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 21, where Jesus says, Blessed are you that weep now, for you will laugh. Amazing words. Blessed are you that weep now for you will laugh. Meaning that God has obviously recognized that as we walk in this world and our hearts are broken for the impact of sin in this world for a lost humanity, and as we pray for, for all these that are lost, that God will someday uh, cause you to, to laugh when you're with him in heaven. And so Christianity is partly about caring for others. And that's what this beatitude refers to uh, in that action, meaning that your heart breaks when you see the nature of sin. Your heart breaks when you look at family and friends and the world and you see them mired in sin and you see what, what sin does to this world. And so we know that Jesus has indicated our, our responsibility is to pray for others and to live for others. He has said many times, quote, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for those who persecute you. What a statement. That's Matthew 5, verse 44. So in everything, Jesus said, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And that's really how we live as Christians. We live for others. We live to be the hands and feet of Christ. And then he said in Luke 6, verse, 6, verse 36, be merciful, be merciful just as your father is merciful. And you know, that's a hard thing to do in this world. Because unfortunately, when you say something or you do something, people often misinterpret, misinterpret it. Uh, and in many ways, they come back at you with harshness. And so God wants you to be merciful, even as people misinterpret what you do. And so Christians have to be in the vanguard of society in reforming the evils of our society. We have to be the point of the spear. We have to be the people that recognize and tell the lost world, you, you can't act the way you do. You can't be sold out to sin the way you are. You have to recognize that there is an antidote for this. It's not within yourself. It's through Jesus Christ. And so what we're involved with here is what I call societal mourning. <clears throat> societal mourning, meaning this week was a good example of it. You're mourning for the state of this country. You're mourning for the state of sin, for the fact that this sin seems to have overwhelmed the United States, all right, in every way. And people are acting in a way in which you see what happens when sin takes over their lives. You never would have seen this 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but you see now the impact of evil in this world. Uh, and so this is why we are called to be mourning, to be praying, to lift up this lost world. Now, Jesus, when he entered the, the synagogue at Nazareth, 
at the beginning of his ministry, and you know I've spoken about this before, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, which was what was to be read that day. He was handed the scroll. And if you look at Luke 14, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said the following, which was an amazing statement that day. Every eye in the synagogue trained on him as he read this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the years of the Lord's favor. Now, what was the deliverance that Jesus preached about? Was he going to go into the prisons and open the prison bars? Was he going to do that? No, of course not. What he was talking about was delivering this world from the impact of sin. Because it was sin that had destroyed the world. It was sin that had brought death into this world. It was sin that had affected humanity, even at that time. And so he, when he said, I, I'm going to bring sight to the blind, yes, of course, he was going to to cure some blind people, but the greater truth was that he was going to take blindness away from humanity, which had been obscured by sin. That's what Jesus did, just as he released the prisoners from sin, from the impact of the tyranny of sin, and delivered them. But you see, they never understood that. They never understood it. They kept looking for a political answer when God had given them a far greater answer than a political answer. He had given them an eternal answer, an eternal answer. And so the gospel tells us as you read it and study it, that Jesus wept twice in his ministry. He wept, and the Bible tells us that, that, it, that he wept. First, for the unbelief of the Jews at the grave of Lazarus. And you know that story, that Jesus was away from the home of Lazarus, and the message came, come quickly. Your friend is dying. And Jesus tarried because he told his disciples that this would be for the glory of God and that Lazarus would not really die. And so when Jesus got there, he got there, uh, and Lazarus had already been buried three days, and Jesus went to the tomb, and the entire uh, group of that community were gathered there, and Jesus saw the overwhelming impact of death as that entire community wept and wept because of the death of Lazarus. And it's said that when Jesus looked at this, he wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. Now, why did Jesus weep? He knew he was going to bring Lazarus out of the grave. There was no question about that. He knew that in, in a minute, Lazarus would come out. So he could not be crying for Lazarus because he knew he was going to bring him back to life. But rather, he was crying because he saw the state of the fallen world that he had created. You understand, this was not the way the creation was meant to go. From the Garden of Eden, man was meant to live forever. Death was never to be part of this world. And yet Jesus saw it. He saw the overwhelming impact of death. And so he mourns for the society. He mourns for the world, for what it had become. Uh, and he wept. And he wept a second time 
a second time uh, over Jerusalem as he was about to enter it for the last time. And he wept because he saw again the impact of sin and what would happen to that city in the future and as it would be totally destroyed. And again, he's mourning over the impact of sin on the Jewish community and the city of Jerusalem, which will be destroyed. And if you turn to Luke 19, you can read this. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, even you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And that's a message of prophecy that we need to say to America today. You did not recognize the time of your salvation. You did not recognize. Now, I want you to recognize something. When Jesus said this, this was in the year 30 AD, and approximately 40 years later, the Roman army would come and lay siege to Jerusalem. It would put a wall around them. They would not allow people to come in or come out. And finally, as they came in and crushed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, not one stone would be left on another because the stones would be fired. They would be set to fire because that was what was necessary in order to pull the gold out of it. And I've read in other books about this that as a result of that, one million Jews, men, women, and children died. One million. It's exactly what Jesus said. It's exactly what he said. And that's why he mourned and wept because he saw this coming. He saw the nature of evil and how people did not recognize the day of their visitation. And so the promise, you see, the promise of this second beatitude is comfort to those who sense their sin and mourn for it. And so really, that relates to us as well. Not only do we mourn for the world and for society in general, but we mourn for ourselves because we know that we are still flesh, that even though we're sold out to Christ, even though we give him our lives, that yet even so, we still are subject to sin. And as a result of that, we are mourning. God wants us to do that. The comfort comes about, you see, from God because we recognize that now we are delivered from sin's penalty. That's what the comfort is because each and every one of you know that you've given your hearts to God. You've given it to Christ. And as a result, God holds you and protects you. And nothing will happen to you because you are with God and, and as a part of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so... This, is, this was very evident uh, at the time that Jesus was born. Uh, this was the very joy that the angels spoke about uh, as they hovered over the manger. They said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings 
of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I bring you great joy. That's the joy, the unspeakable joy, because God has given you the life preserver. God has given you the antidote to be able to get out of this evil that you're swimming in. And so the final aspect, really, uh, of God's comfort lies in the fact that one day God will remove all sin and all of its effects from all the believers forever. This will mean a deliverance, a deliverance even from the presence of sin. Certainly that will happen when God calls us to heaven, but it actually will happen in this world as well when Christ will return. And so it will mean an end at that day to pride, to arrogance, uh, to hate, to suffering, and sickness and death because all of those factors relate to sin. All of those factors relate to the fall of creation. Uh, and so, yes, they, you will have that removed from you when God takes you home. But yes, God will also take it away from this world when Jesus returns. Uh, and so, in that day, there will be no more sin to confess. Because in that day, we shall be like him. What a great image that is, that God would do that for us. And so we shall be delivered from the bondage of sin and corruption into the glorious liberty of Jesus Christ and God. And that's Romans 8.22 that tells us this. In that day, we shall know that those who mourned for their own have been comforted. And so even as we truly mourn for our sinful condition and the condition of an evil world, we are comforted in the fact that God has saved us. We are comforted in that fact. We know that he has saved us. We know that we are assured that we will be with him one day. And we recognize that Jesus sits on the right hand of God, interceding for you every day. Can you imagine that Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, is actually praying for you, interceding for you, at the right hand of God. What a great comfort that is to me. That he knows what I need. He knows where my life is. He knows the perils that I face. And he is praying for me. And he's praying for you. And so this continues to be true for Christians throughout our entire life. You see, here's how it works. The Christian first finds himself guilty of sin. And at first is cast down and, and, and mourning because of that condition. But that in terms, the mourning drives him back to Christ. And at this moment, his peace and happiness return because he recognizes what Christ has done with for him. And the assurance that Christ holds him and cares for him in, in the most profound way. Therefore, the man who mourns is truly comforted and is happy. And that is why in the Christian life, the cycle really goes from mourning to joy, from mourning to, to from sorrow to joy, from mourning to happiness in every possible way. That is the nature of our life. That is the nature of the call that God has given us and blessed us. 
And so on the other hand, what hope is there? What hope is there for the man or woman that does not believe? What hope do they have? You see, they have no hope. What hope is there for a person that is not a Christian, that has not given their life to Christ? What hope is that? If we know that we live our lives as Christians that results in complete salvation, there is nothing in this world that can destroy that feeling. And that is the comfort that God gives you. And that is how God expects you to live. And so how do we describe, how do we describe this man or woman in the second beatitude? How do we look as we look through the lens of this beatitude? On one hand, he is a sorrowful man, but he's not a morose man. He is, he is a sorrowful man, but he's not a miserable man. He is a serious man, but he is not sullen. He is a man who looks at life seriously and contemplates it because he sees sin and understands the impact of sin and recognizes that it has destroyed this world. It has destroyed humanity. It has destroyed the very creation of God. And so in effect, we mourn for a world we mourn for a world that's enmeshed in sin without any hope. For us, no one can take us out of the hand of Jesus. And I want to refer you to John chapter 10, verse 28. When you find that you need comfort, this is a verse that you ought to put on your refrigerator. And Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And so there's your comfort. Jesus tells you that when you give yourself to Jesus Christ, when you submit to him and accept him as your Lord and savior, no one, no power, no principality, no demon, not Satan himself, no one can ever take you out of the hand of Jesus. And God said, Jesus says it even further, no one can take you out of the hand of God. And so there you have the double impact, the double insurance of what it means to be comforted, to know that this is the nature. This is the nature of what God has given us. And that's why we study this Sermon on the Mount, to see the promise of God and to understand what our role is as we mourn for a lost world and pray for a lost world, but yet stand tall as Christians to be the lighthouse and the example of what God wants us to be to these people. And, if, and, and it's important for you also to realize it as Paul referred to it in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. And this is such a powerful verse. This verse is one of my favorite verses where he said, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the church said, Amen. Amen. 
Let's understand that, church. Nobody, no power, nothing will separate us. Not life, nor death, not angels or demons, neither the present nor the future. I don't care what comes before you. I don't care for the state of politics or even how the government itself may fail or even how political leaders may fail. We don't put our faith in government. We don't put our faith in political leaders. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. This becomes an important point for us to maintain, an important point for us to live. Yes, it's a hard week. It's hard because we carry flesh around, because we still have the emotions of the flesh. But lift up your head. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has promised. Know that the Holy Spirit resides in your heart. Know that in every possible way, and that God is there and that nothing will take you out of his hand. Nothing will take you away from the fundamental joy of being a part of the kingdom of God. And so in effect, in effect, as we review this and understand this, it's like the, the apostle Paul uh, said that he was groaning within himself. Can you imagine? He was groaning within himself, and yet he was happy because of his experience of Christ and the glory that is to come. He's groaning. He's groaning because he sees the impact of sin. He sees the fallen nature of, of, of sin. He sees the nature itself saying it groaned. Can you imagine that nature groans? You wonder why we have hurricanes or these terrible things that are coming down upon us? Do you think God created hurricanes? Do you think God created tsunamis? This is the nature of sin as it impacts this world. All of this evil can be laid at the very footstep of sin. It all started at the Garden of Eden. And it's where man fell to Satan and walked away from God. And yet you see Paul reiterating this in such a powerful way. So the joy of the Christian is a holy joy. The happiness of the Christian is a serious happiness. Uh, and this is the man who mourns as a Christian. This is how we mourn as a Christian. Yes, we're brokenhearted. Yes, we are saddened. But yet in the nature of that sadness and that sorrow, we are drawn back to the cross. We're drawn back to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we're filled with hope and comfort because we have a vision because we know the promise we know that will not be taken out of his hand we know that we're guaranteed through eternal security to be with him and just like we want that for ourselves we want it for our family and we want it for the world we don't want to see one person in this world fall and not believe in christ not one person and that's the call today for you as an individual, and for us as a church, if we live by the Beatitudes, if we live by the Sermon on the Mount, then we just can't sit here, walk in and walk out and be the same. We can't be that. But instead, God is calling us. He's inspiring us to go out and change the world, to speak to people about the impact of Jesus Christ, to tell people what God has done for you, to inspire them to come and be a part of the kingdom of God. Blessed, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for this sermon. I thank you for your words, Lord. I thank you for what you've given us, especially during a hard week. And now, Lord, I ask you to let these words grow and resonate in our heart. Let us be inspired every moment of the day, even as we become mournful to recognize that you're comforting us, that you were there for us. And let us lift up and live these words. Let us leave here today inspired to stand tall for you, to be able to speak to a lost world about what it means to be a Christian, to let the people know who are sold in sin that there is a hope, that you died on the cross for them, and that they can have that same hope by believing in you. Lord, bless our people, protect them, comfort them in everything we do, Lord. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen, church. Amen.